Now, the title of our afternoon lecture is as follows. The historical evidence that the gospel is good for nations on an economic and social level. The text that I have taken, just one few, just a few words really, from uh, St. Luke's Gospel, chapter um, 8 and verse 11, and it reads like this. The seed is the word. The seed is the word. And it comes at the end of that parable uh, of the seeds and good ground and so on. And what it comes out of, what is arisen out of, the seed, which is the word of God. What power is in this word of God? What wonderful transformations of society and individuals comes out uh, of the facts and the power of the word of God. So that's the sort of theme that I'm taking this afternoon. Now, I want to begin with a quotation. And uh, it comes from Giles Fraser. So I'd better say I'm not agreeing with everything that he stands for by a long way. But here's a good quotation that he made. It's fairly long, really. But uh, I think we, whatever we may think of him, we'd have to agree with this. And it sets us off in the right direction. He said this. Britain was built upon Christianity. You can't possibly disagree with that. Christianity has been at the centre and moral, spiritual and political life since at least the 7th century. We may even take it further back than that, but fair enough. He says this. It encouraged politicians to think big thoughts and provide politics with a spur to a more ambitious engagement with the problems of the world. Today's politicians are terrified by the faintest whiff of religion because they fear that this might alienate those with different religious traditions. Politicians who use multiculturalism as a pretext for dumping this history are guilty of a dangerous cultural vandalism. Christianity, he says, offers our political life something that it can never generate on its own. For even though politicians can pass laws and make policies, this is not how the world is fundamentally changed. The ultimate source of all change is the human heart. Behind that, of course, is the, is the work of God. But we'll take it as he says it. We understand what he means. The ultimate source of change is the human heart. Christianity speaks of the need for a conversion, a personal conversion of life. Change is not some general announcement of the need for a new strategy. Change is not another press release. Change means you, and change means me. And we agree with him wholeheartedly on his summary, and so on. Now, I want to take this theme just for the first part of my lecture. I'll try and keep my eye on the clock. Of the effect that, of Christianity in these islands, and to emphasize the fact that Christianity has been in these islands by the grace of God since the very first century. And that is a very long time. And we know how long it takes the human heart to take in things. You know, we have a stubborn, unbelieving heart, every one of us. But God has given us all those years to uh, imbibe and to take in and be influenced by these things. Now, I'm going to quote to you again from what is said to be the earliest example, the earliest existing example of a Christian writing in these islands. And it was written in AD 426. 
and it's by a man called Fastidius. It's an unusual name, but uh, I don't know why he called himself that, but there it was. But this is what he said. Now listen to this. Think of this, these precepts, this concept of life permeating our society all these centuries. He said this, it is the will of God that his people should be holy and apart from all stain of unrighteousness, so righteous, so merciful, so pure, so unspotted by the world, so single-hearted, that the heathen should find no fault in them, but say with wonder, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. Let no man deceive or mislead his brother, except a man is righteous, he has not life. Except he keep the commandments of Christ, he has no part with him. A Christian is one who shows mercy to all, is provoked by no wrong, suffers not the poor in this world to be oppressed, who relieves the wretched, succors the needy, who mourns with the mourners, feels the pain of another as his own, who is moved to tears by the sight of another's tears, whose house is open to all, whose table is spread for all the poor, whose good deeds all men know whose wrong de- wrongful deeds no man feels, who serves God day and night and ever meditates upon his precepts, who is made poor to the world that he might be made rich toward God, who is content to be glorious among men, that he may appear glorious before God and his angels, who has no deceit in his heart, whose soul is simple and undefiled, and his conscience faithful and pure, whose whole mind rests on God, whose whole hope is fixed on Christ, desiring heavenly things rather than earthly, and leaving human things to lay hold on things divine. 425 AD, these principles, these truths have been permeating the life of our nation all that time. Our brother Mark touched on Alfred the Great, so I didn't say too much about Alfred the Great, but uh, we already heard how he established the laws of our nation upon the Ten Commandments and the golden sayings of our Lord Jesus Christ. He gave us trial by Jewelry, what a wonderful concept that is, and for the good of a nation. We know that he translated the first 50 Psalms uh, into the Anglo-Saxon, early English, uh, for his own good, so that he might be made wise through the wisdom of God's word and the experiences of David the king, that he may govern the country on the precepts of God's word. He would have translated the rest of the Psalms if God had given him longer. But those Psalms... He strengthened his heart with those precepts of the word of God when he uh, drove back the Danes and eventually uh, brought Guthrum the Dane to the faith and so on. These things are behind him. Also, one other thing I might mention, the pastor pastoralis, when he won the victory over the Danes, he had to win the victory over the moral decadence of the nature that war had caused. And of course he had translated again into English that book, Pastor Pastoralis, uh, how to be a good pastor. He had one issued to every single minister in the land that they might minister with a good conscience as in the fear of God and build up the moral uh, backbone, as it were, of the nation. We know also, just before that time, Cademan, the cowherd, as we sometimes hear him described, translated some uh, of the verses of Scripture into English. Not a direct translation. We wish it had been, but there it was. Translating the Word of God into the language of the common people. Time fails me to tell of others at that time. Uh, Bishop of Sherborne and Aldhelm translating the Scriptures into the common tongue. But we have had a principle 
in this nation from very early on of having the word of God in our own tongue. These past ages are often forgotten. The Venerable Bede, we could go into his period. And he also, as we know, famously on his very deathbed, was completing his translation uh, of St. John's Gospel and other writings that he had translated into the, go- uh, the common tongue. We mentioned the laws of England based on the Ten Commandments. You jump over uh, into the uh, 13th century and you have that amazing figure, Henry de Bracton, again contributed a great deal to the principle of law in our own land. And uh, he looked on things like this. He said, well, this is how a land should be governed. When God made the world, and God in his nature and character, God is all-powerful. There is nothing God cannot do. He lifts his finger, he speaks the word, and worlds are made. God has all power. But God, at the same time, is a God of all justice, all righteousness, all dominion, and authority stems from him. Now, when God made the world, he could have governed it all by his power. Whatever he said, must do. Power would prevail. But God didn't govern the world like that. Though he has power, and his power upholds the world, he said God, in his mind, decided he would rule the world by justice. Justice would be the principle. And so he said to kings uh, of that time, look, you rule your nation. Not, not by power, not because you are the king, not because you think you can do anything you like, but you rule on the principle of justice, justice for all men. And the concept of everybody being under the law was stemming and developing uh, at this very time. These are very important principles. And where do they come from? The seed was the word. Seed is the word. And at that same time, of course, you have that amazing fellow, Stephen Langton. Even as we sat here today, we've had reason to give thanks to God for him because he put the chapter chapter divisions in the Bible. And more than that, though, of course, he was raised up by God to be there at the time of the Magna Carta, the great charter, the great uh, emblem, symbol, if you like, precept, document uh, of our civil liberties. And God raised up that very good man for the very purpose of overseeing, no doubt in some parts, writing that great charter. All these things, without saying any more at this point, are developing out of that seed, which is the word of God. We mustn't altogether write off the Middle Ages as a time when God wasn't working. We, 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 know, we know that there were dark times, but in, even in the darkest hour, God, God is at work. And there were many things that were going on at that period that were forming our own nation. We may remember Anselm and his Cadius Homo. Why did God become man? Great principles that eventually gave us the Reformation were in that book. The way God governs the world, God just, and yet the justifier of the ungodly. That same period saw Celts, Jutes, Angles, Saxons, Normans coalesce into one united and strong nation. How did that happen? Miraculous in many ways. 
The seed is in the word of God. And, of course, that same, that same period, the great universities, Oxford, Cambridge. Some say Alfred the Great founded Oxford. Some contend that. I don't know whether it's true or false. But certainly by this time that we are in now, 12th century, 13th century, the great universities, great concept of educating the human mind, developing the human mind, Oxford, Cambridge, Paris, so on, you would go on, is springing out of the impetus uh, of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. You could go on. The, oh, I better not go on. I could go off on a tangent there, but I'm not. Let's jump over to the, to the Reformation. Also, this has been amply dealt with, really, by Brother Mark. I'll give you one example. You know uh, Calvin in, in Geneva, he had those letters uh, I-H-S inscribed upon all the public buildings, on the coinage, and on the standard weights and measures of the city uh, of Geneva. Jesu hominum salvator, Jesus, saviour of men. And he put it there, of course, not because he was trying to create a theocracy, but because he believed that the principles of the gospel, principles of our Lord Jesus Christ, should permeate every aspect of public life as well as our own individual life. On the coins, so that in economics, so in trade, so in the general uh, buying and selling of every day, honesty, <coughs> integrity, straightforward, God should be in all these things. Now, another Another area you could touch on at the same period of the Reformation, you go up to Scotland, and um, in the Kirk session, one of the Kirk sessions in St Andrews there, uh, a principle was uh, set forth, and it was this. When, uh, when a young couple comes to a minister and asks to be married, can I be married in your church, sir? The minister was directed to say to the young couple, amongst all the other things, he would, necessary things he would say, he would say, well, well, uh, whatever their names were, I want you to do one thing before the marriage. I want you to prove to me that you know the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, and the Ten Commandments. And when you can recite them to me, and you acknowledge them to be of God, worthy of life's principles and so on, then I'll marry you. Well, it seems odd to us, perhaps, to say that. But, of course, there was great insight in it. No marriage is going to be really worthy of the name, and if a marriage is going to be the very foundation of society, the building block of society, it's important that those who are married know the principles and precepts of the Word of God. So these things are running through our society. The Middle Ages, again, and running into the Reformation, and into the 17th century, I would have to sum it up in one of the short quotations. So I give it to you now. We're thinking mainly, I suppose, of the 17th century here. The study of the Bible. I already mentioned the great translations culminating in the AV, 1611, so on. So people, the Bible in their hands, <coughs> general public with the Bible in their hands, thanks to Tyndale and the others. This is how one put it. It was the study of the English Bible which in a single generation raised so many in the 17th century from the puerilities, superstitions and prejudices of the Middle Ages. And he made them strong, far-seeing men, 
and tender heroic women. He raised the nation at one bound to the foremost place among the nations of Europe and more than that, it kept it there. It taught us that the only enduring national prosperity is that which is based on loyalty and obedience to the word of God. Piety, which is nourished on manuals of devotion and the lives of the saints is of the hothouse order. It is those alone who are nourished on the Bible who can stand the storm and flourish in the open air. It is they who become explorers and reformers and philanthropists and pioneers. And that was the case, was it not? If we had time to study the impact of the Bible on the 17th century. Sum up the 18th century in one word, one or two words. The time when it began, religion looked as odd upon a man as the clothes of his great-grandfather. Uh, but then Wesley, Whitfield, and so on. And this quotation that I must have quoted a thousand times in the course of my history, but I'm going to say it again. Canon Overton's famous words on the 18th century revival of the faith, which enabled a man to abandon the cherished habits of a lifetime and go forth ready to spend and be spent in his master's service, which nerved him to overcome the natural fear of death. And indeed, to welcome the last enemy as his best friend who would introduce him to the better land he'd long been living for, which made the selfish man self-denying, the discontented happy, the worldling spiritually minded, the drunkard sober, the sensual chaste, the liar truthful, the thief honest, the proud humble, the thriftless thrifty, and the godless godly. Don't we need that in our society today? And you, you study the Industrial Revolution and all the turmoil, the social upheaval of that particular period of history. And I dare say this, there would have been no progress of an Industrial Revolution if it hadn't come side by side in the providence of God with the spiritual revolution of the 18th century revival. Read of those towns, villages, where industry first began. And at first there were places of riot, wantonness, drunkenness, and all manner of social disorder. But the preaching of men like Wesley and Whitfield, they brought order to that. And as the great uh, uh, Elie Halvey theory, the French historian, he said, and you know it well, it was the preaching of those men that saved England from a French-style revolution. And so it did. You've only got to read the history of the period. So these are some of the things. Let me hasten on to the Victorian period before I get really into what I want to say. I've got to finish your five past. But anyway, the Victorian period. Everybody knows of the great census of 1851 when just over half the population were in church or chapel. And the people were disappointed at that result. We would have been over the moon. But just about half, just over half, two million children at that time were in Sunday school. And the Sunday school attendance grew and grew and grew through the 19th century um, till um, in 1883, four, no, it's not four, three out of every four, three out of every four children were in Sunday school. Three out of every four children attended some kind of a Sunday school or other in 1883. And you wouldn't be surprised to know that from 1850 uh, to that, the 1890s, crime rate was falling every year in spite of the fact that there was an increasing population. We, we, we doubt figures like that these days, but then it was really happening. 
Serious crime fell by 60% between 1850 and 1890. Legitimacy, illegitimacy fell, I should say, by the end of the 19th century to 4%. Divorce was almost unknown, and single-parent families in the modern sense were virtually unheard of. Drunkenness was a decreasing problem, thanks to the efforts of the temperance movement and so on. I'm quoting now. The virtues of self-control, self-help, self-discipline, hard work, independence, thrift, propriety, concept of cleanliness next to godliness, temperance, honesty, promptness, regularity, etc., etc., were held in very, very high regard. Now, time fails me to tell of all the great social reforms uh, of the 19th century. You're already familiar with them. You can say that every denomination, whatever they were called, was involved in it. Even the Roman Catholics were involved in it. Even the Unitarians were involved in it. But what can't be denied is that the overwhelming, the vast majority of the work that was done in regard to social reform was carried out by evangelicals. Whatever denomination of evangelicals they were, massive, massive amount was done. And I, I didn't go into the names of all these people who will be here all day. Even Arthur Broom, whom nobody's probably heard of, uh, founded the RSPCA. <laughs> I would put that right down the scale of importance in a way. But from that sort of level, right up to factory reform, the abolition of slavery and all those things, <coughs> evangelical people are at work in the 19th century. And not just movements, but individual churches. If you go to 1832, I think it's 1832 or 1831, when slavery was abolished in the British colonies, you can, you can get these online. Great long lists, great long lists of names of churches, chapels, that uh, campaigned Parliament for the abolition of slavery in the colonies. You go to the uh, time of the uh, abolition of the Corn Laws as well, uh, that we're really squeezing the living daylights out of the poor. Again, got great long lists of Christian men and women that were campaigning for the abolition of those laws. And, and while I had this piece of paper in my mind, this was a list of all the various uh, activities of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in round about 1870. I haven't actually counted these, but uh, there is at least 60 uh, areas of work that they were involved in, in the regard to uh, spiritual and social welfare of the ordinary man in the street. Time only allows me to give one quotation from the 20th century, but again, uh, that was very well, nicely dealt with this morning. But I give one quotation from uh, Arthur Mee. You know, he was a general Baptist, and he generally wrote things for children. You could get his encyclopedia for children, Arthur Mee. But he said, in 1940, the darkest period of the Second World War, uh, he wrote a book called 1940. You may have seen it. And in it, he says this. If for one day, one day, the common people of these islands lose their faith in God, the cause of freedom must perish. If for one day, the people of these islands lose their faith in God, the cause of freedom must perish.
We're dangerously near to that now, unless the Lord intervenes, and we pray that he will. Now, I want to bring, I want to come off the chronology now and just go on to some other uh, items that uh, are important here. Now, we've talked about people who made reforms and had wonderful ideas and brought uh, great things into our society. But here are some of those things that uh, you forget about. Now, I'm, I'm going to quote here Stanley Baldwin, one-time conservative uh, prime minister. He, he wrote a very interesting book called British Life and Thought. And um, one of the things that he, he took up here was the influence on the Bible, on the English people, in creating, at that time anyway, and through the centuries, I don't know whether we could say it now, but he said it created in the, in the British Isles an enormous sense of duty. Duty. I ought to do this. I am reading my Bible and it teaches me that I should, I ought to do this. This is my duty. And he traces it instantly all the way back to Cademan, who we mentioned earlier, uh, 1500 years ago. And uh, the quote that he, he gave from Cademan was this. For to us it is very right that we praise God with our words and love in our minds he who is the keeper of the heavens, glory to the king of hosts. And what he picked out was, it is very right that we do this, you see. This is my duty to do this. This is why I'm alive. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him. This is what, this is the purpose of my life. This is my duty. And uh, he, he gives ever so many quotes, but here's just one. He quotes from the, the Canterbury Tales. Remember the Canterbury Tales were a veiled protest about the corruptions that had invaded the Roman church at that time. And in the Canterbury Tales, you, you have the, uh, the parson's tale. Now, I read it to you. He's talking about a parson at that time. This noble example to his sheep he gave. At first he wrought, and afterwards he taught. And this figure he added thereunto, Christ's law and his apostles' twelve, he taught, and first he followed it himself. In other words, Chaucer was saying, Anybody who calls himself a minister, he should practice what he preaches. This is his duty. He is to teach. He is to instruct. He is to encourage in righteousness. And moreover, his life should be a shining example of it. That is his duty. And this concept of duty, you know, you can come, comes up everywhere. What am I going to quote next? Every man, England expects that every man will do his duty. Nelson was bringing out a principle that had been in the islands, in our islands, again, from the seed as the word of God was lying behind it. And uh, Tennyson wrote on the death of the Duke of Wellington these words, not once, not twice, in our rough island story, the path of duty was the path to glory. There's a principle. Uh, you have it in um, Wordsworth's Ode to Duty. And you have it in Mrs. Heman's off-parodied verse on Casabianca. You know, the boy stood on the burning deck when all save he had fled. The flames which lit the battle's wreck shone round him all the dead. Yet, beautiful and bright, he stood at his post doing his duty. 
Whatever happened, these principles. And what about Matthew Henry on duty? We must do our duty and leave the rest to God. You know, it comes under what our brother, Mr. Carson, was saying earlier. We preach the word instant, in season and out of season, and leave the rest to God, as it were. Anyway, also, what about a spirit of humility? These things are part of the qualities of good people and good nations. Sunday by Sunday, imagine the churches full as they were, and they're hearing this word. We have a hymn, and it's got, it has a line in it like this Pride, that haughty monster. Pride, and it is a monster. And struts about. You see many people uh, who've caught this disease. Pride, that haughty monster. But a man or woman who reads week by week, or hears, if you've got the common book of prayer, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone the things we ought to have done and found the thing we ought not to have done and there is no health in us. You're not going to strut around thinking you are somebody eh? like that. There is a proper self-respect. <coughs> but the constant reading of the word of God makes us walk humbly but strongly and dutifully with our gods. And the reading of this book also is instilled into our nation a, a principle of personal responsibility. Personal responsibility. We're responsible to keep the law as long as it doesn't go against the law of God. We are responsible for our fellow men and their well-being. There are all man, manner of responsibilities. But the thing is this. British people have looked at it like this. That if we get on with our own life and we do our duty and we're faithful to our responsibilities, there's the source of one of our great freedoms. We don't need anybody else to say, this is what you do. This is what you're about. We want you to... There's been a great sense of independence in this nation from the very beginning. Somebody put it like this. While the British believed in law and authority, yeah, you have to do because it's instituted by God, as we, as we also heard this morning. English society, particularly, despised officialdom and, get this, distrusted the state. Distrusted the state. We need that spirit again because how are these great changes coming in our nation? It seems almost overnight. Because people have not been thinking for themselves, have they? They just let the state say this, 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 and the way they go and do it. If they'd been reading the word of God, it would have been a different situation. And this same spirit that I'm talking of now, it has made, or did make us, not reliant on the state. Yes, the state was there to uh, make sure we, you know, we obeyed the law and kept things in order and so on. But isn't it amazing how in our society, umpteen little organisations have grown up over, over the years. You know, uh, people club together to, to form friendly societies, for instance, to help each other out if they were destitute. Building societies. 
were formed to, to help people out uh, if, they, if they couldn't buy a house and so on. And uh, you, you, you go down to the foundational beginnings of college hospitals and all that sort of work that people got on with because it was their duty, because they'd been inspired to do it by the word of God. And it all falls into the hands of the state. We know some of it has to be organized and in the hands of the state. We, we know that. We're realistic enough to know that. But the real impetus for freedom and duty and responsibility and social well-being comes out of this book. Thomas Huxley, Darwin's bulldog, as they called him, is no friend of ours. But he defended the teaching of the Bible in schools in 1870 when the educate, Universal Education Act came out. And some people, they didn't want any religion in schools and all the rest of it. They argued about it. But he said, well, one thing you've got to keep. The Bible. He said this. On. By the study of what other book could children be so much humanized and made to feel that each figure in that vast historical process fills, like themselves, but a moment of space in the interval between two eternities and earns the blessing or the curses of all time according to its efforts to do good and hate evil, even as they also are earning their payment and their work. So he said, the Bible, you couldn't deny it. <laughs> it had a humanizing influence. It's been the Magna Carta of our freedoms, our duties, our salvation, our hopes of heaven, our very life. All this Bible and democracy would be another great area. When people read the Bible, of course, they walk home, you can imagine, walking home from the village church after a sermon on uh, one of the kings, David perhaps, or maybe Ahab, one of the bad kings. And what are they saying in their conversation? Was he a good king? Was he a bad king? Where did he go wrong? Where was he right? And it's not very long after that you're saying, well, what about our king? <laughs> Is he good? <laughs> Is he not good? <laughs> what do we think about him? And all this. And um, democracy arises out of really the, um, the freedom of speech, does it not? Freedom of discussion, freedom of opinions. And uh, the Bible stimulated that in a most wonderful way. I could say a lot more about it. Better say something about economics. I've got about five minutes left. I quote Fidel Castro. <laughs> just to make sure you're all awake <laughs> um, on one occasion not so very long ago um, Fidel Castro he expressed his utter amazement and his utter um, admiration for the evangelical people there on the Isle of Cuba he could not deny and he had to admit they were the hardest workers they always arrived at work on time and they didn't cheat the system and they gave their best to their employers. What was he talking about? He discovered the Protestant work ethic, had he not? But there it was. But what has the Bible got to say about economics? Well, it says a great deal about it in the Ten Commandments. You know this. Um, the right of private property, for example. Thou shalt not steal the Eighth Commandment. Well, if you're going to steal anything, you're going to steal it off somebody else who owns it, aren't you? And thereby you have enshrined the right of personal ownership. 
further uh, emphasized by the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, and all the other things. Well, they must belong to somebody, it was his house. Therefore, the right of private property. Um, he, he, there's, there's a very famous book called John Chamberlain, The Roots of Capitalism. Here's a bit out of it. Thou shalt not steal, just what I've said, means that the Bible countenances private property. For a thing is not owned in the first place, if it's not owned in the first place, it can scarcely be stolen. Thou shalt not covet, means that it is simple, sinful rather, even to contemplate the seizure of another man's goods, which is something which socialists, whether Christian or otherwise, have never managed to explain away. Furthermore, the prohibitions against false witness and adultery mean that contracts should be honoured. Got it? Contract should be honoured. And double dealing is skewed. As for the commandment to honour thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, this implies that the family, not the state, is the basic continuing unit and constitutive element of society. You see, all these principles there in the Ten Commandments. And he says, he was an American Chamberlain, and he says this about the first settlers in America, the Pilgrim Fathers and their successors. He said, the Bible-reading colonists then had no actual need for sophisticate, the, the sophistications of late 17th century political science. They were the children of antiquity. They were the heirs to the oldest wisdom known to man. And we're that if we're reading this book. We're the heirs to the oldest wisdom known to man. To man. Well, um, what else can we say on this? Uh, Thou shalt not kill is a principle for how to deal with one's employees. <laughs> Some people hear them say sometimes, this works killing me. Well, employers should not be uh, responsible for that. You see, fair play in the economics and so on is there. Now, work took place even in the Garden of Eden. So work is a, is a blessed thing. It wasn't just, a, it wasn't a result of the fall, it was by sweat and tears and so on, sorrow we shall work, but work itself is a noble thing and a gift of God. Abraham Kuyper, you know, one time Prime Minister of Holland, I think 1901 to 1905, around about that period, uh, he said that um, if there's not enough work for people, it's the responsibility of a government to provide work and some of us are old enough, we've heard anyway, we weren't there perhaps, but we've heard that in the 20s when there was mass unemployment, local councils and so on, they did make work. They, they had various works done, various improvements made, so that the people could have something to do. And that's important. Work is important. Pagan society, ancient pagan society, the upper crust of society, didn't work. But work is an honourable thing. Paul set the example, if you like. He made tents. And work is a good thing. If a man won't work, neither let him eat. I know if a man is invalided or something, fair enough. And then there was the concept of the callings. Again, we heard something of that uh, this morning. That everyday work can be done and should be done to the glory of God. Um, there is the idea of uh, usury or lending, loaning money. You know that um, in the medieval church, the days of Aquinas and so on, where, when Aquinas in some ways tried to harmonize Christianity with um, Aristotelian thinking, 
And uh, Aristotle was against usury. And so the Roman church of that period was largely against usury. And it said, they said sort of money is a sort of a, a, a dead thing. It's something you can't do anything with. And then Calvin came along and said, but you can. Now, we guard against exploitation of people through usury. The Bible warns us against that. You mustn't exploit people. But money can be a very productive thing. Uh, and uh, the Reformation, again, brought that, brought that to light. Now, I must uh, close now. John Wesley says a lot about uh, money. And he warns us that the root of money, the love of money is the root of all evil. But I can't give you his exact quotation because I haven't time. Another interesting area would be to uh, discover whether Adam Smith, the author of the famous book, The Wealth of Nations, whether or not he was a real Christian. It's debatable, you know, and you could put a good case for saying he was. He, after all, was the professor of Christian moral philosophy at the University of Glasgow. And to become such a, into such a position, he would have had to sign the Westminster Confession of Faith. And he wasn't a man who had signed something he didn't disagree with, didn't agree with. So that's interesting. I have no time to go into that. Just to end, Abram Kuyper again. He said this, It is only true biblical Protestantism that has a worldview that is comprehensive and coherent enough to combat and defeat the militant anti-Christian secularism of the modern world. Protestantism's authoritative and infallible scripture alone provides the only body of knowledge and ethical foundation to build the church and society. Well, it does. It, it gives us that. And we've got it in our hands. We've got this duty, this responsibility, this privilege to work towards that. And it begins, remember, in the heart of the individual. Jesus Christ alone can save us from our sins. Grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, are our great fundamental principles. Scripture alone, I missed it out, shouldn't have done. But there it is. These are the things. The power is in the word. May the Lord make us great preachers, teachers, and livers of his all-powerful, infallible word. God bless each one.